Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cave, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover episode two of the CBS all-access series, The Stand. Pocket Savior. Let's start the show. Our focus in Pocket Savior is on Larry Underwood, a musician on the verge of making it when Captain Trips hits. He meets Rita Blakemore, another New York City resident, and the two decide to travel out of the city together. Five months later, Larry makes it to Boulder without Rita, but traveling with Nadine Cross, a woman Larry has had a failed relationship with, and Joe, a young boy who doesn't speak. Nadine seems to have a secret of some sort. Elsewhere, Lloyd Henry is in jail, where everyone is dying around him of the flu. He is forced to resort to some extreme measures before he is rescued by Randall Flagg. <laughs> Very spooky intro, Sean. Why, thank you, Jay. One of the things that we are excited about, Jay, since we are doing this episode in as close to real time as possible, is getting listener feedback. Yeah. So um, we were actually in between the first episode, which premiered a week ago today, and us recording this now uh, on the day the second episode premiered, we have gotten some feedback that I thought we could uh, share and react to. So our first one is from one of our patrons, uh, T. McClurg, and he said, I don't think I can do yet another streaming service to see the guy from Hop Save the World. And Jay, that's a reference to the fact that James Marsden was in a crappy movie called Hop, which I believe was Easter themed in some way. So uh, I suggested to T. McClurg that he just uh, wait until all the episodes are done and they get a free trial of CBS All Access and binge watch it. Yeah, he might also want to check out some of the other things that James Marsden has done. <laughs> I suggested I mean, that like X-Men. He was Cyclops after all. And I know, yeah. I know McClurg is a big X-Men fan, but he said, once you've seen Hop, you can't unsee it. <laughs> <laughs> even westworld i mean that's probably the best thing he's done in hey, my opinion there you go yeah uh, we got feedback from somebody named cross with a k who said loved it well there you go i assume cross is talking about our show and not the <laughs> cbs all access show but I'll, I'll allow that it applies to both i'm also assuming that cross is one half of the teenage rap duo crisscross from the 90s not not a relative of Nadine. No, no. <laughs> uh, another Twitter user is Stephen King might recommend. And Stephen King might recommend says, Flag is close to the one in my head from the books. I think this adaptation has started strong and will hook a lot of new people into this mythology. Somebody named Lord Travis the Errant said, honestly, I really like the stand. The cast is incredible, especially Owen Teague as Harold. And while I was worried about the storytelling structure, it worked because the episode focused on only a few characters. Also, I liked Randall Flagg and the way he was used and introduced, except Das Boot, as I'm calling it. That really changes the whole humanity is the real problem theme. Yeah, so Lord Travis, I think, sent us this feedback uh, before our episode one, and we talked a little bit about uh, what he's calling Das Boot, and you and I yeah. both you and I both liked it, didn't we, Jay? Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was great, but he makes a really good point. 
Yeah, my counter, and I don't think that Lord Travis is wrong, just my counter to that would be that um, he says that really changes the whole humanity is the real problem. I would argue that Randall Flagg does not cause Campion to be the one who leaves the lab. He just makes the conditions right for Campion to still make that decision. To give in to his own human failings. That's exactly it. So he leaves the door open just long enough so that Campion can make the wrong decision. Hmm. So just a thought, Lord Travis, you might be right, though. Uh, our next Twitter user might have a similar response. Uh, this is Twitter user Heathen King, who both Jay and I know. And he said, based solely on episode one, I don't like what they're doing with Flag. So I have a feeling that he might have that same uh, thought as you, Lord Travis. I'd be curious to learn what Heathen King's reasons are for that beyond just that he doesn't like it, but I'd say it's a pretty safe guess that uh, it's the, the Das Boot that he's rejecting. Yeah. And then finally, Linda Richards tweeted to us today, so I'm guessing right after episode two, she said, you don't want to know what I think. But we do, Linda, we do. <laughs> and then I responded to Linda, uh, Linda, we might think the same thing that you think, and that's going to lead us into our first area here, Jay. And... I don't think that the structure of this show is working for me. I am a fan of flashbacks when they work, mm -hmm. and I can understand wanting to tell a story in a new and unique way. Having said that, I think the best flashbacks are when the flashback relates to something that we're watching in the present and informs the character's decisions, motivations, and actions that are occurring in the present. And right now, the flashbacks just seem to be a way of telling a story in showing, hey, here's what happened to them before and here's what's happening to them now, and not really having any other further meaning other than that. Yeah, I, I think that if Lost didn't, I guess, invent this flashback structure, it perfected it. And it did so so effectively that it I think it's trained our expectations for a flashback to give us some time in the present, then do that character expansion, add the dimensions to that character like you described in the flashback in a way that connects directly to the events of the present. And these flashbacks don't really relate to the events of the present at all. It just feels like the screenwriters took the linear structure of the story chopped it into pieces, and then shuffled them. And now I'm left with just jumping into parts of the story at almost random times. The only through line is a particular character that I see Larry at this point in time, and then I see Larry at that point in time. And then I see Larry at this other point in time, and then I see Larry at yet another point in time. And I still don't feel like after spending a whole episode getting to know Larry that I've gotten to know Larry. I, I don't really know what makes him tick. I don't know what makes him special. And I don't know why I should care about him yeah. or Rita or Lloyd for that matter. Yeah. And you and I do care about these characters because we know who they are. Mm -hmm. But I think for somebody who's coming at it fresh and what you and I are trying to do with this show is not hold this up to the book and say, hey, here's what the book did. And here's what the show did. Here's what the book did. Here's what the show did. It's, it's very much taking the show on its own merits. And when I look at this, I'm not learning much about these characters. Like in the first episode, I didn't learn much about Stu. I just saw things that happened to him. And in this episode, I'm not learning a whole lot about Larry. I know he's not a nice guy because I see in a brief scene that he's treated his mother badly or, or they have some sort of weird relationship. 
and that he rightfully in my mind leaves the woman who he's having a one night stand with uh who's blowing snot out her nose and leaving her as well um and she doesn't think he's a nice guy and that he's got a drug problem and he treats people badly but again there's no build up to this like i think we're supposed to think he's a big shot musician but we don't even have that build up of when he was a session musician or how he was trying out like there's just little pieces here and it just these characters are sort of just sort of vague because of that yeah i wish that we could spend more time with the characters in this structure or in any other structure a more linear structure um i said this in our coverage of episode one i get the idea the appeal of not making us wait until episode four or episode five of a nine episode miniseries until all the characters are together on screen and for us to get to what you could argue is the more important part of the story, which is what starts in Boulder. So great, do the lifting to make us know who these characters are, why they're important, and and why we need to care about them. And I I, I feel like the show just hasn't gotten there yet. And if they're going to do this episodically, we got introduced to three characters in episode one, we got introduced to three characters in episode two. If we're going to do that again in episode three, by the time we catch up to episode four or five, and we've been now introduced <laughs> to all the characters, we still haven't spent any time in Boulder, except to just see people that everybody's now living in the same town. Yeah. And and uh, so I don't think we've gained anything, but we seem to have given up quite a lot. Yeah, because we see a good example of that is we see Larry making a point of, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see Harold and Franny. Uh, I've been following them. Uh, Larry makes a point of going to Harold's house. And, you know, that was a important scene in the book because we see like, Harold's not the person Larry he thought it was going to be, and Joe has a bad reaction to Harold. But here it's just sort of out of context because we haven't seen Larry make that journey. We haven't seen Larry mm-hmm. have those interactions with Harold outside of Boulder. So why is this important? Why do we spend a scene on that on them in Boulder when we really don't have a good sense of why these two characters would have any sort of relationship whatsoever? That's not hinted at at all. Or like, what's that a bag of stuff that Larry gives to Harold? Yep. That Harold is clearly excited to see. Now, if you read the book, you probably know that it's chocolate-covered paydays, <laughs> but we don't even see what's in the bag. And even if we saw that it was candy bars or something like that, how do we know anything about that? We don't have that connection to Harold. And yep. I know we've got a limited amount of time to work with here, but I just feel like maybe cut that whole scene then. It just felt empty. Yeah, because you're you're setting up mysteries that aren't that mysterious, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a mysterious thing that we should have to wonder about. Like I don't think any non-reader is going to go into the episode saying, "I wonder what was in that bag and how is it important?" Because it's not going to pay off. Same with Joe holding the guitar and how they, you know, like how important it is for Joe to hold the guitar. It's not that mysterious later on. You know, like better to just show that and get it out of the way because you're setting up things that aren't going to pay off to the extent we, we want it to. Like the things that might pay off are Nadine holding the stone that we see Lloyd gets later from from flag. Okay. That's sort of important. Yeah. But the rest of it, not so much. So Sean, we've been talking a little while about what is not working on the show, but we should give credit where credit's due and and talk a little bit about what is working for the show. What some of the things that we do like, if nothing else, to just make it clear that we appreciate what the show has accomplished and we don't think it's, you know, a a total mess. Yes. So what are some of the things that uh, you think are, are working on the show? I think that the show looks beautiful, like the budget is on display and we can see that they have not 
wasted money. This doesn't look cheap in any way to me. Um, there's lots of different scenes in lots of different locations. The effects that they are using for that are great. So you can see that all the money's being spent. And I really appreciate that, that this doesn't look like some cheap miniseries that was done just to get something on TV. Like, I think it was well done in that regard. I think just going back to budget again, you know, this show is visually interesting. Um, the music is great and it's it's like recognizable music. So this is costly music. This is not an necessarily or, or entirely an original score. Yep. And I'd say across the board, the acting is good. Yeah, I would agree with that too. Like there's not any place where I feel like cringeworthy when I'm seeing people on screen saying these things. So that's good. I also like how Flag is repeatedly represented by crows and rats. Yeah. The scene with Larry in the sewer, when he's at his most extreme moment of panic, there's a, a crow actually pecking him with Flag's voice also present in the scene. So moments like that are, are pretty great. Um, and I, I like how they're, they're kind of, they're leaning into some of those aspects of what makes the book a lot of fun mm. are present here. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the showmakers have a reverence for the book as well. Like this episode alone had some of the iconic scenes I think about when I think about the stand. Um, Larry in the tunnel, which has changed to a sewer here. But still, you know, the same thought is there, right? Like Larry's just horrified about having to traverse this unknown space. Um, the crazy guy in Central Park who wants to masturbate in Yankee Stadium and is also naked, like that's here too. Uh, Larry meeting Rita, like all these things that I think about, they're all here. These people know the book inside and out and have a reverence for them and want to make sure you hit those important scenes. So I do think that that's working as well. So not to take us back into another negative space, but I got to say the the show suffers for me in terms of it's, I think it's kind of boring. Those iconic scenes that you were just talking about have a, a negative side to them. They're, they're not given the breathing room that they, they require to be meaningful. It feels to me like a rushed biopic. Mm. It's like, okay, we're going to make a movie about this famous person. And we need to make sure that every new scene is just another moment that everybody knows about this person's life. And there's not enough room left to tell a story about the person. It's just this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. The end. Yeah. This is what's happening here. There's this scene with Larry, and then there's this scene with Lloyd, and then there's this other scene with Larry, and then there's this other scene with Lloyd. And then, oh, by the way, there's this scene with Rita, and now the credits roll. But where's the story? What's happening with these characters? Why are they even doing what they're doing? I'm kind of left wishing for more. Yeah, it's, it's strange because you've got a nine-hour miniseries, which seems like a lot of time, and they're rushing through things, and it's structured in such a way that you don't feel like you're getting a full-size meal, even with this hour episode. Um, they, you only spend with three characters for the most part, but it doesn't feel like you've learned anything substantive about them that really brings them to life. And I think that that gets back to the structure, in my opinion, but also just because they don't seem to be leading to any point at the end of, of the episode, like Lloyd does, right? Mm -hmm. he, he escapes with Randall Flagg. So that seems like a key point, but the rest of it, not so much. And even though I just finished saying like this feels rushed, the reason why I feel it's boring, though, is that it feels like there, there are these scenes where nothing seems to happen. They're there for a sort of atmosphere or effect. And I, I want to just like skip that scene. Like, don't spend 
three minutes of the show on this, on somebody just walking slowly through a room and not saying anything that, that, that does nothing for this. So I find myself getting frustrated with the show. They've only given themselves nine hours to tell this story, to tell a thousand pages of story. And yet they found ways to make it boring, to move too slowly, to give us moments that don't mean anything or, or accomplish much. And that means that they have to sacrifice things that maybe they should have spent time on. I'm a little disappointed by some of the choices they've made. Yeah, especially when you're given basically a storyboard in Stephen King's book. Mm -hmm. um, and you and I have talked before about how King can go off on tangents and, and spend a lot of time, but he really fills it out so that you have a really good sense of these characters and who they are and what they do. And there's a reason that King tells the story the way he does, and he focuses on things the way he does, and it just brings it to life that so far the show is just not doing it for us. Yeah. The Lloyd scenes in, in total, that's one of the most psychologically impactful parts of the book. And it is that way because we spend enough time with Lloyd to suffer along with him, both physically and mentally. So by the time Flag rescues him, we can understand why he's willing to devote himself to Flag completely. In the show, it seems like things just went downhill fast and clearly he took a bite out of the other inmate's leg. But it's not clear how much that got to him. It's not clear that he is at his breaking point because it just feels like just some small amount of time went by. It could have been a day or two. You know, he says, I've lost track of time. Okay, but. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the, the timing also doesn't really make sense because it seems as if when he's hanging around with Pope, and that's the other part that breaks down Lloyd, right? Like Lloyd is supposed to be seen as a second fiddle. He's a yeah. second fiddle to Poke, and then he's a second fiddle to Flag. And we only get one scene of him with Poke. It only takes about 30 seconds. And it seems as if the reason that the guy's head gets blown off is because Poke is starting to come down with the flu, yeah. right? Like, he sneezes, and so, boom, the guy dies, and, and that's why he's in jail. But, like, so for all that to happen, that must mean, like, Lloyd's only in jail for a few days at most. It, it, it builds up to your point, like we don't see that complete breakdown of Lloyd where he's willing to give himself over to flag completely. And, and to be honest, Larry's story progresses far too slowly. It skips over what I think is an important part of his character development, where he needs to be an up-and-coming musician who has just made his big break. And it's not clear in the show that he has made that big break, except that we see one billboard. And they've reduced him to a series of tropes. So he's like not even a real character. He just feels like um, he just feels like a stereotype yeah. of the druggy rock star who doesn't have his shit together. And there's so much more to Larry than this. And I just feel like if this is all they gave us on his intro episode, I, I suspect they're not going to give us much more. And nope. that worries me a lot. It does, because as we talked about when we did the book, Larry was one of our favorite characters and the one we thought might have had the most growth and change over the course of the book. So I'd hate to see him shortchanged. He's also completely missing the, you know, Detective Underwood side of him, yeah. right? There's no, there's no like running extremely funny commentary, even if it's in his head. Just like make him say some of the stuff out loud. He's a funny character. And this Larry, the TV Larry... He's made no jokes. Nope. He's, he's not made me smile one time. No. Mm. All right, Jay, let's see what sort of things we have in Dark Tower Thinnies. 
I didn't find any thinnies. How about you? Mine is very thin. So when the guards are marching Lloyd into his jail cell, you can see that he has a convict number on his back. And his convict number is 9073 dash, and then it's sort of folded over and you can see 47. But that 9073 that sticks out, if you add up those digits, it equals 19. I'll allow it. Yeah, that, that's all I got for Dark Tower Thinnies, though. <laughs> there was not a dearth of yucking it up moments, though. Blah. The show, as we said earlier, uh, they've got a lot of budget, and they're spending a lot of it on gross stuff. Yes, there are quite a few yucking it up moments. The first one that I, I noted was when Lloyd and Polk were doing their armed robbery. And that moment that you mentioned a moment ago about when Polk sneezes and accidentally pulls the trigger, (laughs) the person's head explodes in such a gross way and then sprays the the clerk's face with gore. That was a pretty yuck moment for me. Yeah, I think piece of brain hit the camera too, it looked like. (laughs) And it it very much reminded me of Jules in Pulp Fiction blowing off the kid's head at the back of the the car in that movie. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, the one I noticed first was the hospital scene when Larry gets a call. I'm not sure from whom to come see his mother. And this is one of the few scenes where we get a sense of the extent of the plague because the hospital is full of patients in the halls of the hospital. And he makes a a turn and sees in another wing, there are just body bags being stacked up with dead folks. And there's just lots of people with tube necks and snot flying around and Larry's mother is in a really bad way when he has his final scene with her, one of his final scenes with her. Uh, As I've mentioned so many times, one of my favorite all-time Stephen King scenes is Larry going through the tunnel. And in this case, they've changed it to Larry going through the bowels of New York City's sewer system and all that entails, which is a lot of gross stuff. I think even at one point, Rita says, what is this that we're walking through? And he's like, exactly what you think it is. And yeah. (laughs) Very gross. Yeah. And the final yucking it up that I wanted to call out was the camera lingers on a dead horse. And that's a reminder that horses are affected by Captain Trips, just like humans are. And a crow lands on the horse's head and pecks its eye out. And of course, that was shown in extreme detail with lots of gore and ligaments and tendons and droplets of blood. So yeah, pretty uh, yucky moment. And of course it was a crow. Could have been a seagull, yep. but no. The the show, it 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 sticks by the, the Randall Flag connections and the, the crow is the ever-present and all-important bird. So good choice there. Good choice indeed. All right, well, we want to thank our patrons again for supporting our show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more. Jay, I just want to plug the fact that because we are going to a weekly format, uh, this show is taking a little bit more time for us and a little bit more bandwidth. So anything you can do to help support the show is highly welcome. Yes. And one of our patron benefits is that we thank our new patrons when they become patrons. And every year after that, we will thank you again as you continue to be a patron. So to honor that, we have three one-year anniversary patrons to thank today. And those are Aaron H., Tim M., and Kim W. Thank you all for your continuing patronage on patreon.com. Thank you very much. 
All right, well, it's time for the best part of the show, Jay. It's fun stuff. All right, fun stuff. And I wanted to point out a fun stuff that we missed last episode. Uh, we caught a lot of the things that other people caught, uh, but one thing we missed was that Brian Cranston was the voice of the president in the first episode, and I totally missed that, Jay. Yeah, we both missed it, and uh, I was really kicking myself for missing that. We made a big deal about J.K. Simmons' voice yep. before we saw J.K. Simmons, but we did not catch on that it was Brian Cranston talking to us as the lying liar that was the president. Yes. And in fact, we did talk about Brian Cranston and his tidy whities when making reference yeah. to the structure of the show. So we actually mentioned him during the show and then didn't catch the fact that he was actually in it. Uh-huh. Um, I got a little chuckle out of the Ninja Turtles reference when Larry and Rita were just getting themselves into the sewers. It's like, ah, just pretend like we're Ninja Turtles. Yeah. That, 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 that ought to convince just about anybody to go trudging through the sewers. Uh, I'm going to need a katana before I do that, Larry. And lots of pizza. And lots of pizza. Uh, we talked a little bit about the music earlier that they spent. I thought a unique choice was playing Weezer during Lloyd and Poke's shootout at the convenience store. Uh, hip, hip. It, I just thought Weezer was not the choice I was expecting to hear in the stand. Another odd choice was the closing credit song, which I didn't figure out what that was. It, it is. I, the reason I know what it is is because it's sung by a folk singer from the 70s named Melanie, which is also my wife's name. And it is a... Uh. I, I can't remember the na name of the song, but it's about her skate key. Well, yeah, it, it's a very obvious entendre about sex. But, uh, you know, I, I got new new skates. You got the new key. Let's let's go try them out. Yep. But that is played over the Lloyd and flag partnership that has just been formed. It was just weird. It was it. it the the style of music, the the bright bubbliness of it, the very flirtatious nature of it seemed incongruous with the characters and their relationship unless we're supposed to understand something a little bit different about lloyd being flag's right hand man in this interpretation of the show but uh, aside from that it just uh, the the music pulled me out of the moment rather than augmenting it the way the billy joel song really worked for me with the stranger at the closing credits of episode one i took it super super literally that he just gave Lloyd a key to get out. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> like, it like was the like the composer really, just did was, a Google search. Show me songs with the word key in it. Yeah, I took it totally surface level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there I go, overthinking things. Now, now I will say uh, another interesting choice was uh, when Larry and Rita have their sex scene in the apartment. What comes up when you're watching the captions, which you have to do because I am old, it just says singing in Icelandic. <laughs> And I'm like, that yeah. must be Sigurós, because uh, other than them and the sugar cubes, there's not that many Icelandic uh, singing that I know of. Yeah, and it was definitely Sigurós, Arós. I, I honestly don't know the correct pronunciation no, of the I. name. But I'm a fan of their music. I, I've listened to many of their songs over the years, so I, I caught it when it came on. Yeah, that's this is an odd choice. <laughs> I guess it works, yeah. but... I mean, it's no Reigns of Castamere. They were in the episode where... The Red Wedding happens. Oh, yeah, that's right. Speaking of uh, being old and needing closed captions on, um, the whole deal with Rita Blackmore and Larry is that she is supposed to be much older than him. And Heather Graham's like our age. Like, if yeah. Heather Graham's playing Rita, I feel really old. 
I like to think of myself as a Larry, but I'm more of a Rita, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, just one thing I wanted to call out. There's a scene when Nadine notices the Ouija board game, which of course is it's not called a Ouija board. It's like Uncle Bob's <laughs> generic Ouija board game or something. But it's on a bookshelf. And I guess the set designers or somebody decided to acknowledge the fact that there's no electricity at this moment in Boulder. So they've got all of these lit candles everywhere. And around these board games on very low shelves are lit candles, like inside the shelves and next to the board games. So like there's a candle flame just a few inches below the shelf above it. And there are at least three candles like that. I don't know how it didn't set on fire just in the filming of that moment, let alone this has apparently just been, you know, lit candle for hours. Uh, right. I just, I saw that as an immense fire hazard. It was really distracting to me. I kept yelling at the, the screen, <laughs> put out those candles. <laughs> but hey, maybe just live a riskier life after the world has come to an end. Yeah, right. The one thing I found most unbelievable about the sewer scene was not the hallucinations of dead bodies floating in the water, Larry able to navigate his way throughout the, the, the sewer, having crows flying through the sewer. It was, his GPS still works. Mine barely works when I'm above ground, and his is working, you know, 10 feet underneath the city in New York, and his cell phone still works. How's that working, Jay? I guess you just need to suspend your disbelief, Sean. I guess so. I asked myself the same question. We've got cell phone that still works after like the world has shut down we've got gps that still works after the world is shut down and we've got a cell phone that's still able to connect to gps satellites from within the sewers yeah they're asking for a lot i mean i'll go along with the super flu wiping out 99 percent of the population i'll go along with magical wizards who can transform themselves <laughs> into crows and unlock jail cells with just a, a thought but no, not, not GPS coverage in New York City sewers. No way. Well, it sort of doesn't matter because uh, Larry drops his phone in the sewer, so he loses that. But the good news is he kept the 60 pounds of cocaine dry, and he still got that going for him. Yeah, he, he wouldn't want to get all the rats high. So many drugs. So many <laughs> drugs. <laughs> My last fun stuff item is uh, Rita's joke about the Yankee Yanker and... The part that really tickled my fancy was that when she hears about this guy who wants to go from Central Park to Yankee Stadium, she just feels bad and says, oh, that's a really bad walk. <laughs> I hope you advised him to look for someplace closer. And Central Park and Yankee Stadium are about three miles apart, so it would take about an hour in good conditions on foot. If you were that guy in the hospital gown and bathroom <laughs> slippers... Uh, it'd probably take you a, a lot longer than that, especially given the marauders with machine guns and Wall Street bros Yes, that might take you out before you get to the stadium. The good news is uh, Rita would be well prepared if she had to make that walk because I noticed she was wearing sensible shoes, Jay, which is something that really irked you when we read the book was that Rita yes. did not take the time to put on good shoes. And here she had a beautiful set of white kicks that she was uh, ready to make that walk with Larry. Yes, I was very relieved to see that she was wearing sensible shoes, but I had just as much trepidation as she did about getting those perfectly white, pristine <laughs> white shoes dirty in sewer water. Oh, wait, I have one more. I just remembered it. The opening scene of the episode is 
Larry carrying a propane tank to a barbecue grill, which he immediately starts cooking on. And then the camera backs away and we realize he's in a hardware store, like yep. actually inside and he's barbecuing indoors. And I just thought this was complete lunacy. <laughs> you, could, you could bring the barbecue grill out to the parking lot and cook your steaks. You don't need to fill the space with, with uh, barbecue smoke and, and fumes. But hey, like I said, after the end of the world, you can live on the edge. Absolutely. Jay, we did a ranking after episode one of what we thought of the show. Um, I'm a little wary of doing episode two after what we talked about earlier, but do you have a ranking for this one? Yeah, uh, I think I, I'm only willing to give episode two one Jamie Sheridan. <laughs> this was not a fun episode for me. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to go any higher than that either. Uh, it was not a great episode for me either, so I'll say one Jamie Sheridan. I'll bump it up to one and a half just because the production values are still good. I thought about giving it to Jamie Sheridan's because we got to spend a little bit of time with Flag and those moments were pretty fun. But I was so frustrated by everything else that uh, I, I'll stand by the one Jamie Sheridan ranking for now. Yep. Well, here's hoping that episode three will get better. There's still, despite the fact that we're bouncing around and seeing so much, there's still a lot we're missing. We haven't really been introduced to Nick. We saw him for a brief moment in this episode. We haven't seen Glenn. We haven't seen Tom. We really haven't seen Mother Abigail other than some dreams. So there's still a lot to get to, and we'll see what happens in our next episode. All right, well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover episode three of The Stand. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I've never looked as good as Heather Graham. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing more Whoopi Goldberg. She's a national treasure. <laughs> I love everything she does. She's an EGOT for crying out loud. Not too many of those.